Now, in talking about the book, we've talked about it being forgotten history, but honestly, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people about it already, and a lot of very well-read, well-educated individuals have never even heard of our nation's history with eugenics. So in some ways, it's not just forgotten, it's it's really unknown. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what our nation's history had been with it until we discovered that one of my great aunts had been sterilized. once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And Megan Church is here to explore those exact rhythms in her stunning debut, The Last Carolina Girl, published by Sourcebooks this week. The Last Carolina Girl is a captivating coming-of-age story set in 1935 North Carolina. The story follows Leah, a young girl who is orphaned and sent to live with the wealthy Griffin family, where she experiences mistreatment, and hardship. Against the backdrop of North Carolina's eugenics board, the novel explores themes of poverty, power, and body autonomy that is a must-read for fans of historical fiction. Megan Church is bursting onto this historical fiction writing scene to specifically explore the truths and nuances of who we are, but mostly she writes because she is simply compelled to unearth overlooked stories. Her writing chronicles the plight and fight of unheard voices of the past. She received a BA in English from Indiana University and then built a career as a storyteller and freelance writer for brands, blogs, and organizations. A Midwesterner by birth, she now lives in North Carolina with her high school sweetheart and three children. We are not only bringing Megan's book to the show, but your Patreon dollars funded a phenomenal resource with the best book club books to spark conversation. She shared a dozen of the best book club books to use as a tool for your discussions, and I've added a few of my own favorite books that we've discussed over the many years of facilitating a book club of over 5,000 incredible readers. This is a book list not to miss today, especially if you struggle with selection. Speaking of book clubs, tonight is the Mom Advice Book Club chat for A Quiet Life by Ethan Joella. Don't forget to watch or listen to this month's conversation with Ethan on Patreon before joining the discussion to hear more about his beautiful writing process. Joining our Patreon for a whole month, by the way, is less than a latte right now. It's really because of you that we get to have such incredible guests and offer online tools like today's curated book list. It also keeps those pesky ads away that often abruptly intrude into really insightful conversations. And again, if you love our show, I would be so grateful if you just told one friend about it, just one, you don't even have to post it on social, gave us a like or left a review. If you include your bookstagram or book talk handle, we might even give you a shout out on the show notes. Now let's meet this incredible historical fiction writer and debut novelist, Megan Church, author of The Last Carolina Girl, and discover the best book club books to spark a great conversation. Booking, I'm so excited because we have Megan Church here. And fun fact, Megan and I both wrote for a local publication way back in my early blogging days. And we are being reunited because of her debut, The Last Carolina Girl. And I'm so excited to talk about it with you. There are so many books that I know many readers have read that may hit in the similar theme. One of those is Take My Hand, which we will be reading for book club, and another pretty comparable 
um, offering would be Necessary Lies by Diane Chamberlain. And today we get to hear about Megan's own family story and how it intertwines with her beautiful coming of age story, The Last Carolina Girl. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you, Amy. It's so good to be here. And I just love that our paths are crossing again after, we'll just say it's been a couple of years. We don't need to get into details as to how long <laughs> we've known each other. So <laughs> This is so true. I'm so excited about your book. I will be honest, I picked it up and I was truly transported for a day with it. I couldn't put it down. You have a real sense of place. You have a sense of time. The language that you used was so descriptive. And I have to say that our leading girl is a little bit like Ramona Quimby. So for people that appreciate a mischievous uh, character, this one has a lot of mischievousness. And I would love to hear a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it. Yeah. And I love that Ramona Quimby uh, comment because she was one of my absolute favorite characters growing up. And that was in a time when I really did not enjoy reading. And so I love that that those character qualities uh, came out in Leah, my main character as well. Uh, but The Last Carolina Girl is a historical novel set in 1935. And it's the story of a girl named Leah. And she is growing up wild and free in her idyllic uh, coastal North Carolina setting. Now, unfortunately, tragedy hits and she is orphaned and she is sent away from the only home that she has ever known. And she goes to live with a family that, according to outward appearances, seems to be very upset standing within their community. But she soon realizes that she's not going to be accepted as one of their family and treated as one of their children. Instead, she's going to be a helpmate for them. Now, the longer she's there with this family, the more she realizes that their outward appearances are nothing more than a facade and lurking beneath are long-held dark secrets. Now, this book is set during a wrenching era of history when states formed eugenics boards that forced sterilized individuals for what they called the betterment of society. And The Last Carolina Girl, it's a story of forgotten history and autonomy and the people and places we ultimately call home. Now, in talking about the book, we've talked about it being forgotten history. But honestly, um, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people about it already. And a lot of very well-read, well-educated individuals have never even heard of our nation's history with eugenics. So in some ways, it's not just forgotten, it's it's really unknown. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what our nation's uh, history had been with it until we discovered that one of my great aunts had been sterilized. Um, she was born in Indiana in 1919, and at the age of five, she was sent to an orphanage and later placed with a foster family. But somewhere around adolescence, she went to live at an institution. Um, it was a school of sorts, and they labeled her low intelligence and and sterilized her before sending her back to mm -hmm. live with the foster family. Now, this is a woman, my Aunt Virginia was someone that I knew my entire life. We would spend holidays together. And she was just one of the sweetest, kindest, gentlest people that I had ever known. And one of my lasting memories of her was at a holiday gathering and my infant son was fighting sleep as he always did. And mm -hmm. I was getting a little bit frustrated. And I saw Aunt Virginia um, watching me try to coax him to sleep. And I asked her if she wouldn't mind um, rocking him. And she was delighted. She sat down in the rocking chair and took him in her arms and just looked at him and said, I always wanted to have one of my own. 
Now, she passed away at the age of 92. It was at that point that we learned uh, what had happened to her, that she had been sterilized because her foster family reached out to my mother. And that was when her history was revealed to us. And what is so just continually heartbreaking about her story was how, you know, she uh, read her Bible daily. She gardened. She knitted. She was um, she led such a good life. And there was nothing about her that ever gave us any indication that she was of low intelligence or feeble-minded, but that decision was made by others. And because of that, she was never able to have children of her own. That is so tragic. I, you know, noticed that with your character, you opted to kind of create spells is what you talk about in the this book where yes. she's having seizures. You know, thinking about people in our lives where maybe they might have been labeled, you know, one term that is used is feeble-minded regarding sterilizing people and individuals in this book. Why did you decide to select seizures as the hurdle that this character is going through? Right. So absence seizures are just these moments when, um, you know, it can appear as if the person is just uh, staring off into space. Um, it's not the grand mall where, you know, it's a full out um, epileptic episode of body shaking and stuff like that. And we have known kids who have had these experiences that some have been very short term for just a few months and they go away and, you know, uh, we never really knew what the cause was and others can, you know, experience those for longer amounts of life. And I just thought, what would it be like for a decision to be made to impact the rest of a person's life because of a momentary blip, right? Mm. And so just in thinking through this character and and what would give enough cause and credence to make that decision for somebody, um, that's where the thought of absence seizures came into play. Now, your aunt, when this happened, it actually happened in Indiana, but you chose to set the story in North Carolina. Why did you make that decision for your story? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, I sat with the story for a while before I really started researching it and getting to work on it. And I assumed I would set it in Indiana. I'm from Indiana. It's where I spent nearly 40 years of my life. And it was the landscape that I knew best. And it was also where my aunt had been. But I moved to North Carolina. And my first... um research results when I finally decided I needed to get to work was an NPR article about the state of North Carolina. Now, North Carolina um, is thought to have sterilized over 7,000 individuals. And come to find out, the county where I was residing at the time, my family had moved to um, Matthews, North Carolina in 2015. And we reside in Mecklenburg County, which is where Charlotte is as well. And Mecklenburg County had three times the rate of any other county within North Carolina as far as sterilizations is concerned. Now, North Carolina as a state had gone on to begin making reparations to those who had been sterilized and were still living. But once I saw that fact that North Carolina had such a history and my own county did as well, then it put it in my mind that perhaps the setting needed to be North Carolina. Now, you know, I had moved here in 2015. And honestly, I think coming to the state with fresh eyes also just helped with the description um, in the book because I was experiencing everything for the first time. I mean, this is an amazing, beautiful state. We have the ocean, we have the mountains, we have mm-hmm. the Piedmont in between, and it is just uh, so full of beauty. And in my research, I also discovered that sometimes people would be institutionalized um, 
because of the love of the sea, because love of the sea is something that was thought to um, be associated with uh, insanity. And I started writing this book on a writing retreat at Holden Beach. And I sat there thinking, if love of the sea is indicative of insanity, then I, I think I'm insane. And as I started just thinking about, I knew that Leah would need to be taken from her home. And as I started thinking through what would be the hardest home to leave, for me, it was the ocean. And so those ideas coupled together was really what cemented the setting as being North Carolina. And you just feel that setting because, you know, I'm living in Indiana, but I did feel very transported to North Carolina. I felt sandy. I felt gritty reading the story because you describe her love for the sea so vividly that I think that readers will appreciate that scene setting that you have created there. Now, I know that, you know, obviously the history plays a big part in it. I think one thing that really astounded me And surprise me, frankly, is that we often think about the eugenics relating to Nazi books, like our historical fiction is so laced with that and and Hitler and the purity of race and all of that. But it actually started here in the United States. So what did you discover when you were starting that research process? And what was the most intimidating part about this kind of research? Yeah. So we don't like to talk about, or we often don't realize that, yes, the eugenics movement, really a lot of that research and and the early parts of it began here in the United States. And it was Hitler and the Nazis who looked to what we were doing and were inspired by it and then ran with it. And we clearly know what the results of that was. And so perhaps, you know, it's our sort of protectionism of our cultural identity that we choose not to recognize that past within our history because we see, you know, what those repercussions were and how they played out elsewhere. Honestly, one of the most astonishing things to me that I learned in my research was, again, because we associate this so much with uh, the horrible tragedies that happened during World War II, but it was so commonplace here. It was so mm-hmm. accepted, so much so that fairs, like county fairs, would have booths set up and they would have speakers come in and they would talk about, you know, the need for creating a better society. And they would talk about uh, genetic abnormalities versus those that were more desirable. Even so much so, this was so commonplace that they even had what was called fitter family contest, where families would compete against one another to see who had the most desirable qualities and traits. And then Mm. that family would be awarded that title, the fitter family. So it was all in constructing this narrative of this society, this ideal society that they wanted to create um, by excluding genetic abnormalities. But I mean, let's be honest, These abnormalities were, whether it was feeble-mindedness, which we've discussed, or different health conditions like epilepsy, but it was also race. Minority women were sterilized at a higher rate than anybody else. But then it would even be things like promiscuity, um, which, again, is such a very loose term. But there were just so many um, ways that those making those decisions could justify whatever it was that they wanted to do. Wow. I know that you have created so much with like foreshadowing in the story. We have elements of the fair even within your book. And, you know, just as a reader, I wondered if you had ever at any point thought that the arc should be like in the middle of the story with this happening as like the main event and then kind of 
the fallout after that. Did you ever consider structuring the story a little bit differently? Because as a reader, knowing that that is such a big element of the story and it's a part of the blurb in the story because we are not telling you any spoilers. And I know that when you and I were talking, Megan, I didn't want to guide the conversation in a way that felt like a spoiler conversation. But you said this isn't the spoiler conversation that I was thinking it was. So why did you decide to build it out in that way instead with your story? Yeah, that's such a good question. And honestly, I wanted the story to be more about Leah, not so much what was done to her, um, just her spirit through everything that happens. Yes, uh, it it could be seen as perhaps a spoiler, just knowing that there is a piece of um, sterilization in the book, but there are so many other aspects that are not revealed in that back cover Mm -hmm. copy and surprises along the way. But I didn't want this to only be a book about sterilization. I really wanted it to be about this character, Leah, and this girl with this strong character um, to really shine through despite what had happened. Happened to her. Yes. And there's so much mystery around why this family is treating her the way that she is. Define what a helpmate is, because that was actually a new term for me, because Leah comes into this home and she thinks she's just going to be a child, go to school, do the things that she's always done before. But for readers that may not be familiar with that term, what is a helpmate? Right. So a helpmate was basically somebody who um, perhaps they were actually employed and paid, but in other regards, um, they were not you know, along the lines of a servant or a maid. But basically, a lot of times, um, in my understanding of it, it was also younger girls, whether they were orphans or fostered or whatever, that they were used um to help around the house and do daily chores and cleaning. And sometimes, you know, they would also be able to receive an education at the same time. But these were different times and different circumstances, a different era, really, where there were not the same sorts of protections for children. And so they could be used in this manner um, and not accepted and loved as part of the family and treated as a quote unquote normal, you know, 14 year old, but instead used as a servant. Wonderful. Well, I want to talk about your publishing journey as well, since I have you here on the microphone. You wrote a blog entry about choosing to go a traditional avenue. And I know that we have a lot of aspiring writers. This was a long journey and you knew that self-publishing might have yielded quicker results, right? You are also publishing during kind of a tumultuous time in publishing with, you know, getting a book out and even, you know, just normal issues like we have talked about paper shortages or printing problems and all of those things that come along with, you know, the traditional avenue. What do you think that you gained from going this route and why are you reassured that you made the right decision? Yeah. So every writer has these sorts of decisions to make and there are pros and cons to whether you want to go the traditional route or self-publish. And for me, I spent many years um, working in marketing and public relations and I know what it takes to launch a product or a brand. And I also know that I don't know the ins and outs of the publishing industry. And so to me, I wanted to be able to focus more on the storytelling aspects mm-hmm. and I wanted to partner with professionals who could, you know, help with all the other aspects, the getting the book into the bookstores, getting it in front of readers and into book clubs and and all the marketing and PR that goes along with that. Now, of course, 
I, as the author, still have to do my share in marketing as well. But um, just to be partnered with these experts in the industry, um, that was what I was I was hoping for. And I say hope for because there was never a guarantee that I was going to land an agent and then an editor and a publisher. And it was a long journey. And as far as the timing with um, the craziness of the last few years, um, really, it was just when the story was ready and I started querying, um, I did not choose the timing whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my agent reached out to me before the world was upended uh, with COVID. And it just happened to be that that's when my journey into traditional publishing started to take shape. But every step of the way, with my agent, with my publisher, with the marketing team at Sourcebooks um, has only strengthened this book and the story. And I, I mean, I'm just so incredibly grateful for that because I know that if, if I would have chosen self-publishing, um, the day that I would have uploaded that document, that story would not be as strong as what it is today just because of, you know, their expertise in just helping shape it and make it even better than what it was. Your cover is stunning too, by the way. I just have Thank to you. mention it's it's beautiful. Is that an a photograph? No, do you have any story behind your cover to go along with it? I don't. And honestly, this is part of the traditional publishing route is, you know, the the title, the cover, it is all part of the marketing package. Mm-hmm. And Sourcebooks is so good at being very collaborative with their authors and, you know, working through those sorts of decisions. And so this was just another moment in the journey of trusting their expertise and just creating a package that will hopefully catch readers' eyes because, okay, let's be honest, we do judge books by their covers. We and do. So, And so it is just so good to have, you know, a professional designer, um, you know, making those decisions and just, you know, creating something I if I were creating this, it would look nothing like this. And so clearly, I'm not the expert here. And so it was just another one of those bonuses of, of going traditional. Now, I know you signed a two book deal with Sourcebooks. You are finishing a manuscript right now for the next book. What can we come to expect from this next project that you have slated? Yes. So book two um, was actually the first draft of that was written when I got my uh, two book deal, which was great because then I didn't have the pressure of putting that into words. Um, I had already done that, but we are working through revisions right now because it is set to release next spring 2024. So this one, again, is historical fiction, but a little bit more recent um, than The Last Carolina Girl. Uh, the second book is set in the 1960s, and uh, it focuses on this character named Lorraine. And she has it all. She has the boyfriend, the good grades, the white picket fence, the ambition to become the first woman astronaut. But when this darling girl next door becomes pregnant, she learns that love is conditional and ambition has its limits. So in an effort to hide their daughter's secret shame, her parents send her away to a maternity home, which was a common solution for wayward girls during that time period. Now, at first, Lorraine assumes that the maternity home is a safe haven, but Soon she begins to uncover truths and practices that may threaten the future of the girls who are staying at the home. So Lorraine must decide if she has the agency and power to fight for what she wants or if she must submit to the rules of the society that she once admired. Now, this one is set again in 1965 during what was called the baby scoop era. And it juxtaposes the breakthrough technologies of the race to space with the societal realities that kept women grounded. 
And again, it's historical fiction and it explores, similar to The Last Carolina Girl, autonomy and belonging. But this one also goes on to question the quest for freedom when the illusions of life as you knew it fall away. Is autonomy your lane then? Do you see you continuing to write these kinds of voices in your stories because that's what's, you know, pulling through those threads are pulling through in both of these books. Do you see these like hidden stories about women and girls that need to be told and that's where you're going to land or are you just doing that for these first two? That's a great question. And when I keep asking myself, <laughs> because <laughs> as I've looked at these two stories, um, yes, autonomy is definitely um, playing a major role. And really, uh, for me, it's re- the exploration of these women's voices. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Necessary Lies um, earlier in the podcast, mm-hmm. and that was one book that I read early on in my research. And Diane Chamberlain wrote an amazing book there, but it was told more from the social worker's perspective. And I really went to get into the mindset of the person that it happened to. And it's the same way with book number two um, and the experience of what that would be like to be a 17-year-old girl with everything going for you. Your future is on track. um, And then suddenly the brakes get slammed on and you have to figure out where to go from here. And so really, it's just wanting to see the world through the eyes of these women who have had serious obstacles in their way um, of society really being up against them and just how do they find the strength to go on? And, you know, what does that look like? I, I One thing I love so much about books is how reading can make us more empathetic. And I think really, to me, that is the bigger through line is telling stories where we can empathize and perhaps sometimes empathize with characters that we wouldn't naturally if we only saw the the outer surface of their stories. But by getting into their minds and their feelings and their understanding and perspective, we can find empathy for them. Well, we always like to conclude the author portion of our interview with talking about what you are proud of. And also, I get to tell you what I'm proud of for you. So I just want to tell you on air that I am astounded by how assured your writing is. You write like a seasoned pro. It did not at any point feel like a debut. I know what a thoughtful writer that you are. I love how you were able to weave in your family story. I know that you and I also have a mutual friend that happened to also have a family history with your great aunt. And I can see the ripple effect of her reading that book and being so moved that you shared your family story. I think readers are really, really going to love this. And I'm so proud of you because I know what a journey this book has been. So I'm curious, what are you proud of for yourself? Well, first of all, thank you. That is so sweet and so kind of you. And it has been a journey. You know, I graduated from college, we'll just say roughly 20-ish years ago. And yeah, yeah, (laughs) close enough. Uh, And I studied creative writing and short story. Um, That's what my undergrad is in. And I thought, you know, I'll get the day job. And then I'll write the great American novel and I will be, you know, set up to be an author for the rest of my life. And of course, you know, uh, my journey has not taken that path and that route. But I learned from an amazing uh, professor 
who what she kept telling us again and again is the key to success is perseverance. Through all of that time, I I was editor and publisher of a literary journal and I continued to write short stories. And I wrote two novels that will never see the light of day. They were Mm -hmm. nothing more than practice. And with one of them, I even worked, I hired an editor to work to improve the story, but ultimately I I knew I could do better. Um, And so I decided to, to chalk that up to learning. And that's exactly what it was. And so over those 20 some years, I continued to just hone the craft and keep working with my professor's voice in the back of my head, just saying, persevere, persevere. And then of course, you know, life gets in the way with having three kids and, and, um, all that comes with that. But through it all, um, it was just continuing to learn and and observe, you know, observing the world that I was in also, which really is what helped, you know, uh, craft the setting of The Last Carolina Girl. And now I can look back and I can see how all of those life experiences um, really prepared me for this novel. So, yes, it is a debut novel to the world. But to mm-hmm. me, I do know, you know, all of that time and that effort and growth in education that's happened along the way. And I guess what I'm most proud of is listening to my writing professor all those years ago to just keep going. Perfect. For the second half of our talk, I actually had Megan help us not only create content for the website, but she's also bringing a stack of her best book club books to spark conversation. And I just wanted to let you guys know, for those of you that are paying into Patreon, part of the wonderful things that we get to do is enhance your reading experience. It's bringing on voices who are going to take a lot of time to research or put together articles like this. And Megan is one of our paid contributors for this segment at the second half. So we want to say thank you to Patreon for helping fund this kind of conversation. And everything that we are talking about today will be included in an article that you can access in your show notes. And that is expanding way, way beyond just the few that we're going to get to highlight in our recording today because of time. But you definitely want to check it out because Megan has done thorough research and put together some really thoughtful reviews. And we're going to kick things off with a book that is all about friendship, which is Rules for Visiting by Jennifer Kane Francis. Tell me why you think this is a book club worthy book. Yeah. So this one, first of all, I do have to confess that I have not discussed this with my book club yet. Uh, I believe we're discussing it in two months and I'm really excited. And to be honest with you, I'm ready for a little bit of pushback because I just want to be clear from the start. This is a quiet novel. This is not high drama, page turning, compelling sort of book. But I lost myself in this book. And um, I don't know if it was just where I am in life at this particular moment, but it really struck a chord with me. And so I cannot wait to discuss this because it really talks about what is friendship in the Middle Ages? So this follows 40-year-old May Attaway as she sets out on an odyssey of sorts to reconnect with four best friends who she met over the course of her life and who she hasn't seen in decades. And as she reaches life's midpoint, this socially awkward loner is examining the meaning of friendship and community in a digitally dominated world. So her profession is a university gardener, and it's the perfect juxtaposition to the online world that allows us to cultivate appearances and aesthetics. 
So again, this is quiet, it's witty, it's poignant. And I had to remind myself multiple times that I was reading fiction and not a memoir. May's voice is just natural and conversational. And I really thought she was real, but it is subtle and patient and to me, slow in the best ways possible. And I felt like I was talking to an old friend relating to her experiences, maybe perhaps some of the social awkwardness thanks to the last few years of being kind of, you know, secluded and isolated. So that connected with me, especially. I just really think that this is going to spark a lot of conversation about what modern friendship looks like, what midlife friendship looks like, and the importance of in real life bonds, especially when we can just hide behind devices and and think that that suffices for friendship. You know, I, I did look this one up because I had started it. I did not finish it, but I think that the encouragement that you're offering is making me rethink my decision. Eleanor Oliphant had just come out, I think, around a similar time period, and there were a lot of you know, leading protagonists that were kind of quirky or had those kinds of themes in their stories. So I had put it aside just because I was so immersed in those kinds of stories. But I did, you know, kind of want to research a little bit about what her inspiration was for this book. And The Millions did a great interview with Jennifer Kane Francis, where she shared that she thinks people might be losing the art of visiting. So the author said, this is a quote, we are so busy and mostly unwilling to inconvenience someone else because we don't want to be inconvenienced ourselves. Just look at the language around asking if you can stay with someone. I don't want to put you out. Please don't go to any trouble. I'll be out of your hair soon. And she says, today we stay in touch with emoji buttons, texts instead of calls, and travel mainly for sights and experiences instead of friendship. And it makes her think of Jane Austen's novels. They're just full of lots of things we don't seem to have time for, like letters and walks and visiting and the stuff of lasting friendship. She also did a really great piece in Slate that I'll link to in the show notes where the author actually decided to take May's rules for visiting. So May's four rules were make the visit for the purpose of friendship only, not because you have a business trip in the area, for example, stay at your friend's house, be alive in the space of the friendship, meaning no social media during the visit, take pictures for yourself if you want, but no posting until later, and don't make special plans like spas, resorts, fancy local restaurants, because the purpose is to see an ordinary day in the life of your friend. And after executing a trip for herself to visit a friend. She reflected that May's rules one through three are definitely worthwhile, but the fourth one needed some flexibility. And she acknowledged that people just want to show off their best features of their places that they've designed to settle into. And they want to take you on things like scenic drives and book ferry rides and take you to nice places to eat. And perhaps we could make a little space for those kinds of adventures too. So I loved seeing that she actually executed a visit with a friend to see if she could follow May's strict guidelines for good friendships. That's amazing. I love that. And, you know, as somebody who moves 700 miles away from a home, I really related to this book, too, because we have had the pleasure of having friends who come and follow the rules for visiting. But what is so funny is I don't follow rule four because I want to show off, you know, Mm. our new town and city and just the beauty that's here. But um, I think what I loved about this book too, was just realizing that the best parts of those visits are just those normal downtime moments when we're just sitting around the table together, just laughing and reminiscing and making new memories. I love that. 
Well, we want to talk about another book that you thought would make a great conversation, and that is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. This is a book that I have read too, and I do want to say that if you missed our episode on Celebrity Book Club Deep Dive with TikTok creator Tell the Bees, and that is Tell the Bees with three E's just to make it really fun, you'll definitely want to go back to listen to that because this was one of the selections for No Names Book Club that was featured in our show. So I would love to hear why you think this one in particular makes a great conversation starter. Yes. So this book was the last one that I discussed with my book club. And, you know, this story just explores so much identity and found family, race, belonging, and the generational impacts of people's decisions and desires. But really, I think what what caused the most um, conversation for us was the idea of passing. And there are a, diff- a few different ways within the book that characters pass. And really, our, our conversation just started exploring how we ourselves pass in our own you know, daily lives or the, the decisions we make to pass or not to pass, to fit in with a certain group, to act a certain way or not. The book as a whole is just such an empathetic view of the decisions that people make in regards to identity and consequences. And it just really created uh, so much conversation for us. Yeah, Fox did a really phenomenal interview with the author where they were discussing what it was like to write this book that's so concerned with race in the Jim Crow era and in the decade afterward, and then have it come out in 2020, which was a moment when the national conversation around race had been really galvanized. And she shared that the experience was really strange. And I I say this because part of our conversation earlier is you write a story, you don't know when it's going to come out. You don't know what's going to be happening in the world or if it's going to hit in the right ways or if that message is going to feel differently to the people that receive that message. So Britt had said, you spend so much time writing a book, you have no idea what the context will be like when the book actually comes out. For me, I kept thinking like, oh, this book is going to come out in an election year. And I thought it would just be the context surrounding the book. And then I started to realize that it was going to come out during a pandemic. And then that felt like a context I could not have predicted. And most of us could not have. And then the book came out maybe a week after George Floyd was killed. And the conversation turned so squarely in that moment to race. So she said it was strange, but I had to realize that any sort of label of timeliness is something that comes from outside of the book. Timeliness is a label that is applied externally, and it's definitely not anything that is in your hands as the writer. And it has to do with the context in which a book is released and which readers greet that book. So it felt strange, but again, it felt like one of those things that have nothing to do with you in a way, although they do contribute to the narrative surrounding the book. For those of you that may have really appreciated this book. We also know that there will be an adaptation. It was actually acquired for a television show for a reported seven-figure sum, and the limited series will be executive produced by Britt Bennett and Issa Rae's Hooray Production Company. There is no air date, and there has been some shuffling with writers, so we will wait and see. As, As we know, things in Hollywood have been a little bit shuffled lately, but it is definitely one that you might want to pick up prior to watching the adaptation. Yeah, that's great. And it's so true. Just hearing what Britt said about the timing, you know, 
you start working on a book years in advance, really, honestly, of when it's going to hit the shelves. And you have no idea what that current context is going to be. And this book just hit at such a perfect moment. And it really does have a timeliness to it. Um, And there's so many themes. I think part of that reason is because it covers so many different themes. It's not just about race. Um, it's about, you know, identity and generations and mother-daughter relationships and even beyond mother-daughter, you know, into cousins even. Um, but there's just so much to it. It's so rich that, that that's what gives it that timeliness. Well, this next book you have selected is Radium Girls by Kate Moore. And I know a lot of us have read this one. I, I do want to share this interesting information around why that even started, because why did Kate Moore want to write it? She ended up directing a play about these girls and was struck by the lack of focus on the women themselves in existing literature. And she wanted to tell that story from their perspective, drawing on their personal journeys and own words. This research ended up involving a lot of travel and archive digging, and Moore found extraordinary material, including letters from women in small local museums, high school yearbooks, and local libraries, and legal files in the Library of Congress. She also interviewed the women's families, and she has admitted to crying many times while writing this book and often felt like the women with her were drawing on their courage and strength as inspiration, and she sees herself as their representative and wanted to help them speak out and be heard. So what was it about Radium Girls that hit the right notes for you? And why do you think this would make a dynamic conversation starter? Yeah, so this was first published in 2017. And to the best of my recollection, I read it shortly after it was published. And it is one that is continually on my mind and always gets me worked up. Now, perhaps part of the reason why it's on my mind is um, I have an 11-year-old daughter who is obsessed with science. And Marie Curie is one of her all-time heroes mm-hmm. who discovered radium. Uh, and this book focuses on these um, women who painted watch dials in uh, radium factories. And, you know, at the time, uh, there was definitely, you know, a certain amount that was known about radium, but some did believe that it had health benefits, which is just unbelievable Mm. to consider with what we know now. But these women were asked to lick the tips of their paintbrushes so that they would have a finer point. This eventually led to them having just excruciating health issues and, um, you know, dying from this. And as the doctors started asking questions and realizing the commonality between these women and, and looking back at these radium factories, you know, the factory owners refused to admit any fault. And for me, I mean, to take a book, to take a nonfiction read and um, make it into the page turner that it is, is such an impressive feat. And what you said about, you know, how Kate would cry for these women, that comes through in the pages because you can just see the empathy that the author had for the plight of these women. And uh, just the way she gets the story out into the world is so inspirational. And again, it's just one that I come back to again and again, and it's just always on the top of my mind. Yeah, I listened to this on audiobook, and I will say that I wish I would have had the paper copy. For some reason, the audio to me was not great. I I just want to be honest about that. Uh, I had a hard time. It was like almost it was too quiet, like the story was too quiet. And there was emotion within the audiobook. But if I was going to choose the like avenue I would go again with, I would have picked up the paper copy. I also have kind of a strange but insightful story that might be helpful to anyone who is interested in continuing to explore that. Uh, there was this 
incredible series on PBS called The Poisoner's Handbook. It was a book that was written in 2011 first and then got translated into like this PBS documentary series. And I think it's about two hours, but they're like little chapter segments about different poisons. And that is where I had learned about these women initially prior to even reading this book. So the PBS series explores the early 20th century when poisonous substances like radium, thallium, morphine, potassium cyanide were commonly found in American medicine cabinets. And in 1918, New York City hired its first scientifically trained medical examiner, Charles Norris, and his chief toxologist, Alexander Gettler, who turned forensic chemistry into a formidable science over the next decade and a half. This series is based on Deborah Blum's bestselling book, and it kind of ties together both the poisons and the forensics when doing these murder cases. And basically, the whole thing is kind of reenacted. And it sounds a little cheesy, but we were so riveted by this. And I remember that story of these girls in particular. And I went to hunt to see if there was a place that anyone can view this. And fun fact for my library people, Hoopla actually has this and you can rent it for free. Otherwise, you have to pay to stream it. So definitely use a Hoopla credit to get this because it will be eye-opening not only to that, but to all the different poisons that were accessible, available, you know, how people were being murdered. And there was no, you know, rhyme or reason to what seemed like just these unexpected deaths. And then once, you know, these forensics start coming into play, how these scientists and these, you know, commonly used medicine cabinet tools were used in a lot of murders. Just to continue the conversation further, I do want to highlight too that Kate has another book out. It's called The Woman They Could Not Silence, and it was published in June of 2021 and became another commercial and critical success. This is another nonfiction book about the life and advocacy of Elizabeth Packard, a 19th century American woman who was wrongfully committed to an insane asylum by her husband. And despite being confined in silence for three years, Packard refused to be silenced and fought for her freedom, as well as the rights of all women who were being wrongfully committed to asylums at that time. Kate Moore's passion as a writer is to help people have a voice, especially those silenced through injustice. I love that. And here's a fun fact. As my agent and I were determining which publishers we wanted to go out on submission to, it was this book that made me say source books. And even though mine is fiction and Radium Girls is nonfiction, it was still something about the story and those voices of that women that really drew me to source. And um, it's been a great home for me. So and, and I've heard of her second book, but I've not read it yet. And I can't wait to do that. Yeah, I looked it up on Goodreads. It has phenomenal reviews, just like the first one. So I am intrigued and definitely want to check it out. I have read a lot of historical fiction around women being committed to asylums and what that experience is like. And I think hearing maybe a nonfiction story and uh, especially a woman who's finding her voice in that time period would be really great for a nonfiction November stack if you're planning ahead or just if you need a nonfiction escape to break up your fiction routines. Well, this next book that you have for us is one that is comparable or like a comp book for what you are doing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about another conversation starter? 
Yes. So this one is The Girls in the Stilt House by Kelly Mustian, and it was published in 2021. Now, uh, it is being used as a comp to my own book, and that is really because of the Southern historical um, genre that it falls within. The Girls in the Stilt House is set in 1920 in Mississippi. It's the story of two teenage girls living very difficult lives in the South. Now, one of them runs away from home and swears that she will never return, but with no other option she moves back in with her harsh father. The other is the daughter of sharecroppers, and she is determined to make a better living for herself. Circumstances push them together, even though they are both very alone. Um, But to survive, they have to figure out how to trust one another. Now, this to me is just Southern fiction at its best. I got lost in this literary book. It's so full of character depth and development, and it explores themes of belonging, race, found family, and the cost of hidden paths. And to me, this is a must-read book. I read this last summer, and I continue to recommend it to others. Uh, we discussed it in our book club as well, and it's just the richness of these two girls and their characters and their plights in life. But it's also the setting. Um, the trace in Mississippi is so much a character in and of itself. The And the language is just lyrical and poetic. And it is just such a masterfully crafted story. Well, this is a USA Today and Southern Indie bestseller, and it was shortlisted for the 2022 Crooks Corner Book Prize. It is on my list and I haven't read it, but I did look up, you know, some articles about it. And, you know, one of the things that I really found just wonderful to the interpretation of how do we address historical fiction. Uh, this book doesn't shy away from big topics like murder or abuse or racism, for example. And when asked in an interview what advice the author would give someone about writing about difficult issues in their family history, she shared this piece of wisdom Resist the urge to romanticize the period or the characters. An authentic view of the past is a powerful gift to future generations. And I happened to be watching a TikTok where there was a conversation around lessons in chemistry. And it was basically how a lot of historical fiction is being rewritten in some aspects to inspire women to showcase voices. But at the same time, it's also really important that we not fantasize about what happened in our past and that historical context is actually given because romanticizing would then lead to fantasy. It wouldn't actually be a historical fiction. And I think that's a really important conversation. And the fact that this author is saying like she didn't want to romanticize it. And I think that's a really important element when I'm looking for a book club book. Is this real or are we creating a romantic notion around a time period? Uh, she also shared in past interviews that her sister's interest in genealogy actually rubbed off on her enough that she ended up doing coursework required to obtain a professional certificate in genealogical research from Boston University. And she uses it primarily to help others discover their own answers about their own histories. And she volunteered as a genealogist at a public library, conducted workshops and assisted patients, and she even took on her own personal clients. So I thought that was a really fun fact about this author. And I know that uh, you and I could probably talk all day about how we use historical fiction as tools and why it's important to not romanticize things. 
Absolutely. Rose-colored glasses aren't going to do us any favors. And um, in the end of my book, The Last Carolina Girl, I quote Mark Twain, who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I really think that when we don't take an honest look at what our history is, then we're at more risk of it rhyming. And so that's what, you know, part of what I so appreciate about Kelly's book, The Girls in the Stilt House, is is that she is not afraid to show all parts of that history in its harshness. Um, but there is still, e- even with that harshness and that reality that she discusses, there is still so much beauty in the story that she tells as well. Well, we are ending on a high note, I feel like. Uh, it's a nostalgic pick that you have for our last book. It's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. All right. <laughs> tell me why you think this is a good conversation starter. Yes. Okay. So I don't know that I really need to discuss what the storyline of this book <laughs> is. Um, I really did choose it because it's it's very different and it's so nostalgic. It's nostalgic for a lot of people, but it's not for me because as I mentioned earlier, I did not enjoy reading when I was younger. And so I missed out on this experience um, mm-hmm. when I was an adolescent to read this book, but it has come up in conversation recently. And the movie is set to release starring Rachel McAdams uh, this spring, I believe. And so I thought, you know what? It is time that I read this. I need to know this for myself. And so um, I actually listened to it. I was so astonished. I love the honesty of it. But for me as a kid, I never would have discussed, you know, <laughs> puberty and periods and all of it and bras like so openly as Margaret did. And I loved that about her as well. But um, I'm also, you know, in a different place in my life where those conversations are so much more commonplace. And I love that, you know, my own kids don't um, have those same holdups that, that perhaps I did as a kid. And so I just thought this would be such a great conversation for book clubs, uh, you know, especially uh, women-oriented and dominated <laughs> book clubs. But just to discuss, um, you know, how we were as adolescents, what sort of honesty um, and conversations we had then, but also just what our life experiences have been since then. So I just thought it was such a good nostalgic pick to just open up conversation. Yeah, I know. I just remember reading it when I was a kid. And uh, I apparently, here's a fun story for everyone. I went to Bible class uh, because I had Miss Sue in my first grade who taught me all about the books of the Bible. And I interrupted the class and said, Miss Sue, Miss Sue, Margaret got her period. And everyone was like, what? And Miss Sue said, Amy, we are not talking about periods today we are talking about Jesus and so it, she kind of looped it back in and um pulled my mother aside and was like what is your daughter reading because I was a early reader I obviously like I was an advanced reader even back then and really gravitated towards things that were exciting plot wise and I was really preoccupied with the sanitary pad belt for a really long time for many years did not understand why I didn't know anything about that so I'm, I'm really glad you brought this to the to the backlist conversation uh, for those of you that might like a little fun fact around Judy Bloom just because I thought it would be fun to dive in uh, she this novel was published in 1970 it has never been out of print since its initial publication in 2010 time 
Magazine put it on a list of the 100 best novels published since 1923. And in 2012, it made Scholastic Parent and Child Magazine's list of 100 greatest books for kids. However, starting almost from its first publication, it has long been one of the most challenged and banned books in America. Parents, administrators, and politicians have often tried to get the book removed from school libraries and reading lists, both because of its honest examination of puberty and menstruation and because it depicts a girl who is given the freedom to decide for herself what religion she's interested in adhering to. Despite this controversy, the book remains a beloved classic that has helped generations of young readers navigate the challenges of growing up. Now, Mental Floss published Published a really great article with cool trivia, which I'll link to in the show notes about the book and the movie that I loved hearing more about the creative process for Bloom and her involvement in the film. First, I don't think many people know this, but Bloom wrote this whole book in just six weeks. It was her third published book, but the first one where she said she finally let go and allowed her creativity to take over, and she often refers to it as her real book when she did interviews. Now, if you're worried about the film, I just want you to know that you'll love knowing that Bloom is actually serving as a producer on it, which should help ensure that it accurately represents the book. And since so many people are very concerned about that, it's good to know that she's involved in that project. The film will open on April 28th at theaters nationwide. And as it's a story that's passed down through generations, I know like my mom, my sister, my daughter, and I are all excited to see this one. That's great. You know, part of the reason why this was put on my radar is because uh, some of the film was shot here in and around (sighs) Charlotte. And it was actually a male friend of mine who said that he was traumatized by this book when he picked it up from his sister's uh, pile when he was a kid. And I'm like, okay, then I definitely have to read this and check it out. (laughs) He probably should have stayed in the super fudge lane or something. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, Megan, if people would like to connect with you more, what is the best way to do so? Yeah, so you can visit my website. It's Megan Church, and my parents decided to be difficult and add another letter in my name. So that's M-E-A-G-A-N, church.com. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, um, and I am M Church Writer on all of those platforms. Readers, be sure to get The Last Carolina Girl. It will hit store shelves on March 28th. And don't forget to check out that article. And if you feel encouraged to do so, either like or review the show. It would be really helpful for growing the audience. And contributing to the Patreon is how we get special guests like Megan on to be part of the conversation. And I hope that you will check out some of these book club conversation starters today. 